1: welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 350. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, we bring you a trifecta special, including three varied stories by three varied authors, but all sewn together with some theme of sorts. The theme of trifecta number 29 this week, Something's Fishy. We're going to start things off with Kinda Like Salmon, by Keffy Carole. Keffy's a speculative fiction writer who currently lives in Seattle. Once upon a time, he lived in a tiny house with plants growing through the walls, but that was a long time ago. Like, at least five years ago. Now he lives over a freeway and can tell you what the I-5 driving conditions are. If you're curious, I mean. He attended Clarion USCD in 2008. This is this story's first public appearance. The story is read to you by someone who needs no further introduction, Travelcast Chief Editor Nathan Lee. So without further ado, we bring you Kinda Like Salmon by Keffi Carolee.
2: Sophie woke before dawn. "'on the first Monday in her new house. "'She lay in the darkness of her bedroom in her fixer-upper "'and tried to figure out why she was awake. "'The creature, for it must have been some kind of animal, "'made noises that reminded her of a cat in heat. "'She wondered if they were ferals "'or if she was going to be telling her neighbors "'that no matter how cute kittens are, "'they needed to get their cats fixed "'before loosing them on the unsuspecting community. "'She frowned and rolled over, "'holding the pillow over her ears.' Even muffled by the pillow, she couldn't help think that what she heard sounded less like cats and more like a person moaning, though not enough that she'd comfortably assume it came from a human throat. She huddled down under her blankets and fought the urge to check her locked doors. The noise cut through the walls of her house like the wind through thin clothing, but she didn't dare go outside to see what it was. She'd seen enough horror movies to know better. The next day, Sophie bought milk, eggs, and bread from the small grocery store in town. The bored teenager at the checkout barely looked at her, just zapped barcodes with her zapper and keyed in codes. Her name tag said Jess. Jess chewed gum and didn't say more than a muffled syllable that might have been high. Annoyed, Sophie said, I heard some animals last night. Feral cats, I think. Is that much of a problem around here? Jess actually met her eyes for a second. It was probably just the zombies, she said. Sophie didn't move. Excuse me? Happens every year, just said, popping her gum. You get used to it. This is part of their life cycle. You know, kind of like salmon. They come home to where they were born, they breed and they die. Right, Sophie said. Sophie was glad there was no line behind her when she leaned on the checkwriting platform and asked... Okay, assume it's zombies. How do I get rid of them? Jess popped her gum. I don't think you can. Zombies are pretty territorial. Most people just wait for them to die. Again. You get used to it. Unsatisfied, Sophie went to the county sheriff. He just smiled at her from behind his desk and said, Oh, there's not a lot I can do about that. We sell a lot of zombie hunting licenses every year, but it's not legal to fire a gun that close to a residential house. It can't be very hygienic, Sophie said, starting to despair of ever getting a full night of sleep in her new house. Hey, what with them being dead and wandering around and losing pieces everywhere? Nope, the sheriff agreed. Sure isn't. Sophie bought a shotgun, and the next time the sound started up, she loaded the gun and sneaked out her back door by the light of the full moon. This time it sounded more like a dog fight than anything else. When she found them, she could tell by the way that the grave dirt stood out stark against their pale gray skin, and by the number of fatal wounds, that they were indeed zombies. Zombies so busy that not even the proximity of Sophie's large brain distracted them. She didn't look real close at what they were doing, not needing to know about secret unlife cycles to shoot the writhing undead corpses through their heads. The Undertaker came out the next day to gather them up and return them to their abandoned graves, clucking at the damage to their craniums. After that, Sophie slept well, all the way up until one night in early spring, when she woke at the dead of night, straining to make out what had startled her from sleep. When she couldn't hear it again immediately, she started to drift back to her dreams. Then it started up again from somewhere out behind her house, the plaintive wailing of an infant, lost, alone, and hungry.
1: And that leads us to our second story this week, In the Eyes of the Needy, by Jonathan Schneeweiss. Jonathan's a student of ancient Babylonian literature in a postgraduate program in Queens, New York. He runs a blog for beginning writers, which you can find at schneeblog.com. His passion for writing is matched only by his passion for fried chicken. Amen, brother. And I'm reading this little bad boy for you guys. This guy was previously published in Daily Science Fiction. So without further ado, we bring you In the Eyes of the Needy, by Jonathan Schneeweiss. Itzam's fingers moved on their own. They found his sunken chest and counted his ribs. His father would have snapped his hand away, a stupid habit of a stupid boy, a stupid starving boy who counted his ribs when he was hungry, even though it made him only hungrier. Itzam knew it was stupid, but he couldn't help it. He was so hungry. The ocean was silent. The boat was still, the fishing line as motionless as ever. The last rays of sun sparkled on the waves. There would be no fish today, no food. Itzam's fingers brushed his chest and began counting his ribs again. No food for another day. The line tugged. The rod tore from his hand. Yitzam lunged and caught it. He braced himself against the gunwale. The boat quaked beneath him and he reeled in the monster at the end of the line. He gritted his teeth and pulled with his entire body. The surface rippled and broke and the monster exploded from the waves. Yitzam blinked. There was a splash and it was gone. The line went slack. Yitzam fell backwards into the boat. But he had seen it. Seventeen pounds. Maybe even eighteen. Enough to eat for how long? Enough to sell for how much? Father would have been so happy. And now it was gone. Yitzam scanned the surface of the water again, but all he saw was endless blue rippling gold and orange beneath the setting sun. Eighteen pounds. Enough to eat for how long? He moved his fingers to his ribs again, but he caught himself. Eighteen pounds. A splash came from behind him, but it was small, barely even a splash. More like something just coming out of the water, only she held the fish in her scaled hands. The skin of her arms and shoulders was bluer than the water around her, growing paler at her chest and face. She looked at him with large, dark eyes. Is it yours? she said. Her voice was small and delicate and multi-toned. It got away, Itzam said. Here it is. She offered the fish in her hands. It flipped and wriggled, but her scaled fingers held it easily. Its arm breathed. There was a net and the bulkhead. How many times had his father prepared him? But he looked at her dark, tangled hair glistening in the sunset rays. He saw the blue-green skin of her chest and the way she smiled at him. The net was right there in the bulkhead, but he hesitated. The fish was forgotten. Eighteen pounds? What was eighteen pounds of fish when right before you was? Do you want it? She smiled and held the fish forward. Itzam could not speak. Her dark eyes beheld him calmly, easily. He wanted to stare forever. He wanted also to look away and to grab the net and to never look again. No one had ever told him. No one had ever said they were this beautiful. How was he supposed to use the net on such a magnificent creature? Do you want it? She asked again. Father would not have hesitated. He would have fetched the net immediately. He would be rowing home now. It was the right thing to do. Itzam knew that. He thought of the houses on the hilltop that overlooked the town. Great big mansions of marble. Kitchens filled with cooks and servants to wait on you night and day. Everyone would be happy. No one would ever starve again. All he had to do was... I'm sorry, he wanted to say. I'm so sorry. He reached into the bulkhead. He grabbed the net. Come, she said. A sudden gust of wind rocked the boat, and Itzam stared at her outstretched hand. By now the sun had dipped below the horizon, though the sky still shone gold and red with its rays. Around her the water had darkened, but her skin glowed with the final flickers of crimson in the trembling waves. A smile came to her face. Life came into her eyes. Itsam grasped the net tightly. Behind her smile, Itsam saw sadness and hesitation and fear. He knew those feelings, but still she smiled, and the net fell from his grip. He took her hand, and he dove into the water. A thick rope wound around his body and wrists. He struggled against his bonds, but all he could think about was the pain in her eyes as she tied him with dark rope. It was the same pain he had felt just moments before. I'm sorry, she said. I'm so sorry. She dove deep into the sea, dragging him down with her. Yitzam fought for air and thrashed. As the darkness closed in around him, his gaze moved on its own. He found her sunken chest and counted her ribs. And we finish this week with a particularly strong closer Sea Changes by Erica L. Satifka. Erica's fictions appeared in Shimmer, Clark's World, and Daily Science Fiction. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband Rob and far too many cats, if there is such a thing. This story first appeared in Idiomancer in September 2008. The story is read to you by Tina Connolly. Tina's one of my favorites. She's been publishing stories for a while now, and her Nebula-nominated novel, Iron Skin, came out from Tor in 2012, followed by Copperhead and Silverblind. Next up on her docket is Seriously Wicked from Tor Teen. Check out her awesome Parsec Award-nominated Totally Awesome Fiction podcast. You really should. If you love Dreblocast, you'll certainly find common ground here at toastedcake.com. So without further ado, we bring you... Sea Changes by Erica L. Satifka.
0: The room my father dies in is green. Green like his eyes, green like the carpet of the house we used to live in. When we lived under the sea He dies with those green eyes open Gone milky under a film of cataracts The nurse who comes to take away the body Looks at him with disgust But then they all do Are you the daughter? Yes She inspects me with her bureaucracy eyes And I sense her grudging approval I only spent two years there two years in the pressurized dome that was our family's refuge. I am not like him. I'm not like her either, but at least I'm not like him. My father was not a strong man. His limbs were rubbery and slack from the years spent underwater. Some people, like my old foster parents, said his brain got rubbery too, clogged with seawater seeping through his eardrums. That's nonsense, of course. My father was always well-protected whenever he left the airlock in the bulky scuba suit that made him look like Superman instead of the hundred-pound weakling he really was. But people will believe what they want to believe. While the nurse rolls my father onto a gurney and heads for the incinerator, I gaze out the window at the skyscrapers that line the avenue, polished black surface as far as the eye can see. I don't turn around until I cease to hear the nurse's squeaky shoes, and then I slip away. On Tuesday afternoons, I take the bus out to the suburbs to attend my support group. They have all kinds there. Sea people, glacier people, people who grew up in floating villages the size of three square city blocks. It is hard for people to adjust after living in these conditions, they say. It is a state requirement to attend. It takes all kinds of people to build America. A woman named Dolores leads our motley group. She is young and eager and hopeful and mindless. Every session begins with a variation on the same question. When did you figure out you were different from other people? When you told us, I want to say. But if you do that you don't get your subsistence check. I I was nine years old. Some kids pushed me down into the mud on the playground. They called me mermaid. They were so cruel. And I hang my head, putting my hand over my mouth so she doesn't see the smirk. That's the kind of answer she loves to hear. Her pleasure is evident. And how did it make you feel? Awful, I say. Awful. Dolores grew up in a split-entry house in a subdivision called Mulberry Creek, with 50 other families exactly like hers. Despite its name, there is no water in Mulberry Creek, just a lot of split-entry houses. In the ocean, there are no subdivisions, That's only one of the things that make it so dysfunctional. Today we're going to do a little bit of art therapy. I want you to draw a picture of your ideal home. What would it look like? What would it contain? Dolores passes around pads and crayons, enough for the entire group. Also, there is no art therapy in the ocean, as there are no counselors there. The secret I don't tell them is this. I loved it there. I loved every second of it. When you grow up in one of Earth's most uninhabitable locations, you don't expect much in the way of amenities. That's why they house us in dormitories. One person to a postage-stamp-sized room. Communal bathrooms and kitchen. A small backyard for us to pace around in and tend. It's not much, but between the monthly checks and the free medical care, it's a pretty sweet life for someone like me, but it makes some things hard. Dating, for one. Can you imagine bringing a guy back to a place that's designed to mimic your abusive childhood home under the sea, and trying to convince him you're a nice, normal girl? That's why we usually date each other, though that has problems of its own. Namely... The self-pity patrol. I grew up on an ice floe near Greenland, a guy named Mark or Matt says. Okay. It was a very traumatic experience. I mean, I was really affected by it. Takes one to know one? I don't think I'll ever get over it, Mark or Matt says, shaking his head. There's just no way. I don't blame you. It was a terrible way to grow up. It's a good thing I like being alone. When night comes, they turn on the wave machines in the ocean people's wing to remind us of home. We'll go crazy if we aren't immersed in our natural environment, no matter how dysfunctional our natural environment is. That's what the top experts say, so it must be true. At first it kept me up, but now I'm indifferent. You don't really hear it after a while. But when it does keep me up, I like to pretend that I'm back there, back underneath the ocean, in the thick wool blankets my mother used to wrap us in. Together in our aloneness, my brothers and me, the only children for miles. A hologram of a fish swims past me, on the wall above my cot. You can't even see fish in an underwater seafloor dome, but they don't care. I don't know where my brothers are now. They probably live a life a lot like me, in the cities they were taken to after we were all rescued and separated. I wouldn't know how to contact them if I wanted to. Sometimes memories are enough. When I met my father for the first time in 13 years, he was starving and homeless, having hitchhiked from Albany, New York, which is where he was placed after we were rescued. He bribed my address out of a state worker sympathetic to our case. They exist, though they still don't like to touch us. He was dying of cancer. I took him out for coffee and we got to talking. I never should have made your mother move. His walrus mustache trailed into his coffee cup. You don't have anything to apologize for. I ruined your life. You can't ever be normal because of me. I'm the one that made us move. I liked it there. I wouldn't change a thing. You can't get a good job because you didn't go to school. Because of me. Drink your coffee, I said. We shouldn't have run things aren't so bad here. I followed his gaze out into the street. His breath quickened as he watched the riot of flesh and metal streaming down the street, the crowded, angry world. We thought they were bad. There were too many people, too much noise. Life wasn't exciting anymore. But excitement doesn't matter. We should have stayed put. With a quick gesture, I turned his attention back to the table, back to me. I love you, Dad. He sighed, added cream to his coffee, and swirled it around, a miniature charybdis. I touched his gnarled hand with its delicate network of veins and looked out the window up to the sky. The stars weren't out right then, but they would be soon, And I thought then that someday I would like to be among them. In my mind, I buried my feet in the soil of a virgin planet, strange waters lapping at my shin bones. Here and now, I traced the blue highways of my father's hand.
1: our trifecta hope you enjoyed let's close things out this week with our 100 character winner by up and coming twitfic master pawn spider here it goes (music) forms combine and break apart only to rejoin again and again what is this place where I gasp for breath above the sky Fish or space. I like it. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters not counting spaces. Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter each week for the winners early at the Treblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. And special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Bo Kyer. Boho's our art director and wearer of a fuzzy mascot head. His work can be found at BoKeyer.com. Boho welcomes all interested, artistically gifted listeners to contact Bo at Drabblecast.org and weave their talents into the Drabblecast's blasphemous tapestry. Go for it, folks. We love having your art. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kire, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to keep counting those rips, folks.